working our way through the book of Romans. We have a great text tonight. Working through the logic of redemption. We have prayer groups still tonight. Interview. Romans 8, 31 to 39. Eight verses. Probably some of the more familiar verses in the uh, letter to the Romans. Especially some of them. What shall we say then to these things? I'll talk about these things in just a minute. If God is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. So that's the first he is Father God in 32. He who did not spare his own son. That's Jesus Christ, God the Son. And then the next one, two, three, four, five, six words say something really unbelievable. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Gave him up for us. So in my notes, I circle him and I circle us because there's something there that doesn't make sense. Why would Father God, why would Father God give up him for us? Gave him up for us. Put the emphasis there. Gave up him. He gave up his only son. Gave him up for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also... With him, that is, with, with the giving up of the Son. How will he also with him graciously give us all things? What, logically, what would be more costly for God to give up than what he's already given up? That's the issue there, right? If he's done that, I called this the logic of redemption. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You, are you going higher up? You, you have, you going over his head? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding. You notice the repetition of who is. Who is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding. It escalates. The argument builds. He's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then his list. Tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, can't afford clothes, danger, or sword, as it is written, and now this quote from the Psalms, 
quote, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, that's all the things he's just mentioned. You, you don't get to avoid them all. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not conquerors, more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm sure, it's nice when you can be sure of something, isn't it? I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case he's missed anything, this covers it all. Nor anything else in all of creation. That doesn't leave anything out. Nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a text. These verses are Paul's attempt to pull meaning out of the theology he just laid down previously. If you back up three or four verses to those well-known words... Our text tonight in 31 started with, what then shall we say to these things? What are these things? Well, here are these things. The these things are 28, 29, and 30. And we know that for those who, who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, starts with foreknowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there'll be followers, brothers and sisters. 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are the things. Those are the these things. What then shall we say to these things? They're huge. Huge. Paul has, he has this concern that here we sit tonight. He's thinking about us. It's very easy to, you got your notes, you got your Bible open, I got my Bible open. Here we are sharing, studying the Word. We do it all the time. That he's concerned that we can come to the place where we just know the facts that are there in the text without 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 knowing the meaning and the application of those facts to our lives. So, so it becomes theological data, but we don't see life through these things. That's why today's text, if you noticed, 31 through 39, it's really striking the way it spins around a series of questions. Did you notice that? We should, we should notice it because the Bible is showing us how it wants to be studied. You're not just learning a text here. You're learning how to study texts in the way this is put together. We're, we're, meant, to sort out, we're meant to sort out not just the facts... Paul wants us sorting out what difference do these facts make. 
If we leave here without that, we've missed it. Even if you've memorized the verses. We're meant to sort out the difference it makes that we've been foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified through the redeeming work of Christ, God the Son. So what, what then shall we say, underline, say to these things, 31? The idea Paul has is we, we, we dialogue with truths like this. So we're not meant to just, we're not just to hear a teaching or hear a sermon. That's why Paul says, what are you going to say if not out loud, in here. What, what are you saying about these things as we talk about them tonight? How are you processing them? What, what shall we say? And, and he indicates just in those words that there's supposed to be a dialogue with truths like this. You, you say something back regarding the work Christ has done. It's not just knowledge that Paul is after. These These ideas are too big just to be slotted and cataloged in your cranium. How shall we we talk to ourselves? We're going to leave here pretty soon. Services aren't that long. And we'll be gone. Off into your week. How How shall we talk to ourselves Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday about what God has done in Christ through this text? What, what will we say in our minds? How will we draw out application? Volleying, like a tennis game. It's going two ways. If we studied nothing else tonight, there's precious truth enough just noticing the method of Paul with difficult theological doctrinal truths. I made a note. What shall we say to these things? 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? 32. How will he not also freely, graciously give us all things? 32. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 33. Who is to condemn? 34. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 35. Six questions. Paul is, this is the way Paul presses his head into truth. Don't just read the word, even in your devotions. Don't settle for just saying, I've covered this little thing here, said I'm supposed to read these three chapters, that chapter, that one. There. Engage as you read. Involve yourself. Love God with your mind. Don't just settle for the bare duty. Read with the intention of figuring things out. Read to discover. Read to have something to say to the text. What shall we say to these things? Don't read the word with indifference. Fight laziness, mental laziness, like you would fight a bandit in your house. There's a reason Paul wants us to work with him through the details of this text. There's a reason for the repetition of these searching questions, six of them. This text deals with uh, this text deals with the reason you're here. This text deals with the ultimate issue of your existence. You're a Christian, I assume. 
Your life, says Paul, is hidden with Christ in God. What are the threats to my Christian life and to yours? There are only two. Only two possible threats to consider, and they're in this text. There are internal issues of sin, guilt, condemnation. That's 31 to 34. And then there are external threats. Pain, rejection, persecution, death. That's in 35 to 39. There's nothing else. You have no other problems to worry about than those two things. There are internal dangers. Sin, guilt, condemnation. There are external dangers. If I am safe and secure through those two things, then I am safe and secure indeed. That's where Paul's going in this text. Point number one. Don't worry, we're quite a ways in. We're going to deal with the first threat. The foundational defense against condemnation. It's in 31 to 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, that's, that's the big question, eh? You have to have him for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How could it be otherwise? That's what he's saying. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? So charge against, condemn, you see what he's dealing with here. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, what I get from this text is this. Inner guilt, insecurity of eternal destiny, condemnation when I fail, inadequacy before God. What I learn is, these things can't just be soothed away. Because the only solution Paul offers is a doctrinal solution. It's Christ who died, who rose again. So, so whatever good it can do, psychology can't help with the actual guilt of sin. Therapy can't erase my condemnation before God. These things can deal with the emotional damage that guilt sometimes brings, but creation, the fall, sin, they've left me with much bigger problems, more objective problems than just feelings of guilt. I'm guilty. Eternally so. So this isn't just a matter of, you know, people telling you something good is going to happen to you today. It takes more than just listening to your breathing or getting touched with your heartbeat. No, there's real guilt. Real guilt before a God who is really there and is going to judge the world. So Paul, Paul has an argument to build. He has a case to make. Th these verses, 31, 32, 33, 34, they, they, they are the reasoning process behind Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's great. It's good news. Why? Why is it so? Why is that true? What, what entitles me 
to rise above inner condemnation when I fail. I'm certainly not perfect. I don't think you are either. You might be a lot better than I. It's not as though... Is there anyone seriously in this room that isn't aware of one thing anywhere in your life that might bring the displeasure of God? Like, we just don't live there. We all know. We all know we have guilt. We all know we have sin. It's not as though we aren't aware of anything we've said or done or thought that isn't worthy of God's displeasure. If we're not under condemnation anymore, why aren't we? The reason we're not under condemnation is the heart of the first part of this text. Paul puts it in general terms first. Last part of 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And you'll notice the verbal play, right? For and against. If God is for us, who can be against us? So no condemnation can stand against us. That's his argument. Because God is for us. Okay? That's good too. But how is he for us? How do I know it? Is God for us the way a mother is for her child's junior baseball team when she sees him come up to bat and she's sitting in the bleachers? Come on, Johnny! Is that how he's for us? Wishing us well? You can do it. Is he for us in the sense of wishing us his best? Is he, or is he for us in the sense that he's just, he's just really, really loving and he just really loves us? How is he for us? And here's my point. If you're relying on any of those examples I just gave you, you're never going to be free of condemnation. God isn't for us in any of the senses that I've just painted. None of those alone, nor all of them combined, would solve the problem of condemnation and guilt for sin. That's why Paul probes a little further. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. See it in 32? How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? So now we have details. God is for us. God is for us in a way that is somehow tied to not sparing his own son, but giving him up for us all. So, so God is not for us just in some general sense of trying to forget about our sins because it's his nature to be pleasant and nice. It, it's not as though God were just loving, so everything's going to pan out okay. There's all sorts of Christians who believe that. All sorts. And it's not that we're all just God's children and he's not going to let anything bad happen to us. Paul goes way deeper here. I hope I can make you see it. He says God is for us I'm going to try and say it in a way that, that 
sticks in your head. God is for Don Horbin. It would be blasphemous to say it if it weren't in the text. Put your name there. God is for Don Horbin by being against someone else. We know he's for us because he did not spare his own son, 32, it's right there, but gave him up for us all. That's central. So there is now no condemnation for us because here's why. Here's why. God is for Don Horbin because he was against someone else. And the someone else was his own son. He gave him up for us all. He's, there's no condemnation on Don Horbin because that condemnation has been poured out once already. It's been poured out before. It was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Do you see it? It's stunning. Why? God didn't just give up his son in the sense of allowing a group of people to wrongly accuse him and put him to death. That's not seeing and saying anywhere near enough. Brian Zahn says that. God wasn't involved in the death of Jesus. He says that. It was the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders. God had nothing to do with Jesus dying on the cross. That's just, that's a horrible thing to say. And Father God didn't give him up when he was born into this world that first Christmas. No. The Father gave up the Son. That Gave up. That's in the text. 8.32. The Father gave up the Son for us all by placing our condemnation on him. The reason there is now no condemnation for us is not our innocence. That's not why. The reason there's no condemnation for us isn't due to our innocence. It's due to the fact that God is too just to condemn the same sin twice. Father God gave up the Son to his own wrath. You sure, Pastor Don? Paul will say it even more strikingly. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Is that in your notes? Yeah? For our sake, he, Father, made him, Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or or to quote the words of Isaiah 53, 5, upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. I kick myself. I preach sermons on Isaiah 53. I read it all the time. And, and, and we read words like that so frequently, we don't think to ask the obvious question. We don't read those words as Paul encouraged by asking, what, what are we going to say about these things? What shall we say? Well, the obvious question we should say to Isaiah is, why in the world would Jesus, God's only son, need to be chastised? 
What did he do that was so wrong? What did Father God see in him that merited condemning? And Isaiah the prophet would say, no, 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 no. That's not it at all. He was wounded, 52, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Paul pulls the argument further, 33, 34. He's still dealing with that first enemy, the internal condemnation, guilt. 33, 34. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. This is his plan. You're going to tell him he can't do that? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Note that first question carefully. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then, 33, it is God who justifies. God's the creator, right? God's the creator of all. Anyone who might stand to bring a charge against us will have to be one of God's creatures, even Satan himself, created being. We are his elect in Christ. No other creature in all creation is powerful enough to sustain a charge against those whom the Creator has justified. But there's more. Who is to condemn? 34. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way Paul specifically makes reference now to Christ Jesus, the one who died, was raised, and is interceding. And the reason, let me tell you what I think. The reason Paul ties my freedom, not just to the fact God is the creator, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect, that's a strong enough argument. But the reason he ties my freedom from condemnation so intimately to the person and work of Jesus Christ it needs to be thought through. Because the place where my sin would scare me most, we feel bad when we fail the Lord. We feel bad when we don't measure up, when our own conscience tells us we're, we're not all that we should be. Okay? So everybody carries around some of that. But the place where we will feel most guilty for our sin will be when we stand before the throne of God. That's my feeling. I can live with my guilt in front of you, maybe. But standing before the throne of God, that's when we become most aware of all that we should be and aren't. I think we're agreed on that. That's when we will feel the weight of that the most. He's blazingly holy. I'm not. The place where that judgment, that final judgment takes place, it it has a name in the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before, listen, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Think about that for a minute. It's the judgment seat of the one who already bore my sins and my condemnation in his death. That's the one you stand 
It's the judgment seat of the one who rose from the dead. And it's the judgment seat of one who, from, this, from the moment of his ascension on, the judgment seat of the one whose presence in eternity has been full-time engaged interceding for us. It's the judgment seat of the one who is stamped with humanity forever, who is one of us, who is forever with us. It's the judgment seat of our sympathetic high priest, as the book of Hebrews says. So Paul wants to win this argument. There's no condemnation anymore. Christ died. More than that, rose again. More than that, intercedes for us. He says, walk with me right through this argument. That's what Paul is saying. This is something I want you people carrying around with you, Paul would say. Go over this. Say something about this in your own thought life. You'll need to because our own hearts can be full of self-condemnation at times. 1 John 3.20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. For any condemnation to stand against me, in Christ, some creature made by the power of the Creator has to stand up and prove Jesus Christ is a fraud and that his intercession is ineffective. And that'll never happen. That'll never happen. All right, that's the first part. That was the longer part. External circumstances. Inward guilt, condemnation, sin, how that's dealt with, the logic of it. Rehearse this in your mind all the time because your own heart needs to be reminded. It forgets how secure we are in Christ. Secondly, external circumstances can't undo what Jesus Christ, God the Son, has accomplished. So he moves on, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Now this is Paul again. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, persuaded in the old King James, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul moves on now from the internal enemy of guilt, sin, condemnation, to external enemies, too many to number, too many to list, that face God's elect in this present world. We need that kind of reminder, don't we? I mean, the Christian faith isn't pretend. It's not a fairy tale. There's not a gospel in the New Testament that starts with the words, once upon a time. There's uh, no shortage of enemies that march on our lives here. No shortage of enemies. That's why Paul quotes the words of the psalmist. The words from Psalm 44, 22. As it is written, he says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes them to show that this has been the experience of Christians down through the centuries. All the apostles, virtually. 
No Christian is to think because God loves him or her that trials and difficulties won't come. There's always been a cost to following Christ. Outside of the natural enemies, there's the, the hostile culture that finds the message of the cross offensive. So we got biblical realism here at its best. But if, if there is a cost to be considered, there is never a threat to be feared. So the issue drives, drives home here. And it's raised in this question in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The idea is, who, so who can win against Christ? And Paul could simply say, well, nothing at all can win against Christ. But he doesn't do that. He wants us to think through all the possibilities. He could have just said, well, nothing. But he doesn't do that. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all of creation. He, he covers everything he can think of. He ponders the fearful inevitability of death. The drudgery and toil of suffering that sometimes comes in life. He, he thinks of the powers of the natural realm and the spiritual realm. He thinks of things present and and. Who can know what's coming down the road? The unimaginable things in the future. None of us sees them all. And then to sum it all up, he just says, and, and anything else in all creation. There. Every trial, every foe, every obstacle, nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ because anything other than God is just part of the creation. Only God is creator. So it's certain that nothing else in creation can usurp his power. And now we're wrapping up. It's a great text. Internal enemies of sin, guilt, condemnation. External enemies, physical, spiritual, and every other kind. We are secure in Christ. But, but we shouldn't quite close our Bibles. You know the questions that he asked? He asked six. I want to ask a seventh. Why is he telling us all this? Are we being told all this so you and I can just go home from church thinking, ah, gee, that was good news. Well, it is. And we should rejoice. But, but is that it? Is that what's on Paul's mind? What's his purpose I think the clue is found when he describes us as more than, more than conquerors. Nothing separates us, that's true, because we're, we're more than conquerors. And it's, and it's this kind of aggressive, I think of a military conquer, don't you? Conqueror, is, it's that kind of word. It's got some momentum. It's got some force to it. Here's what I think. I think Paul is telling me and telling you that ultimately we are completely secure in Christ Jesus. And the reason he's telling us that is to give us courage, but not just courage to feel good. I think the design of these verses is to give us such security in Christ. Listen to me, everyone in this room. The design of these verses is to give us such security in Christ that we will gladly risk everything to extend the kingdom. There's a safety net. 
you can give your life away. You can do outrageously risky things for Christ because ultimately you can't lose. You don't have to secure your life around your RSPs and your pension and how much money you've got socked away for retirement. You can go boldly where no one has gone before with the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're more than conqueror and you cannot lose. That's the reason Paul stresses the security we have in Christ. It's to help us to venture great things for God. If all you've got is this life, if all you've got is this life, and if every threat can take away everything you hold dear, you're not going to do anything great. But if you know that your, your eternal future is secure in Christ, and that nothing can separate you from his love, then think of what you can do for Christ with all you are and with all you have. That's why he tells us this stuff. Let's pray.